1: As night falls on the mountains, the sounds of birds and the buzzing of insects slip away to near silence, as the first frogs are heard, and their huge, broad bass begins to spread across the valley floor. Then from nowhere in particular, growing like a great slow swell in the ocean, the crickets add their pulsating treble. The all-encompassing twilight vibrates with sound. I can no longer hear myself. I shut my eyes in the hammock and await the appearance of stars. Hi, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books Network seminar. And what I've just read to you is the possibly dolorous tropical lyrical coda at the end of Simon Critchley's new book, ABC of impossibility. This came out in 2015 with Univocal, and it's a beautiful, texturally satisfying, um, perfectly sized white book that you'll want to buy and have and hold and carry in your hands and put in your pocket and take with you so that you can read and reread and dip in and come back out again throughout the day and throughout many days. So what this book is, is a collection of what Critchley calls fragments. These are fragments that range from one line to several pages, and they cover topics that include world, happiness, death, New York City, indirection, Hegel, relationships, Patti Smith, Langer, Augustine, eccentricity, Marx, impossibility, and others. Now, what the book does and what you'll hear um, in the course of the conversation to come is touch on, um, sometimes briefly, sometimes uh, not so briefly, some really fascinating um, and really beautiful moments that help us think through not just world or happiness or suicide or tourism, But also, in a way that's very light handed, um, but very, very thoughtful, raise, at least for me as a reader, some really interesting threads and themes um, that are really just really interesting to think with um, and to think about. It's a beautiful book. It's a thoughtful book. And it's a book that is, I think, um, a huge pleasure and and really, really rewarding to work through, um, regardless of what field you work in, of what you think you typically like to read. Um, If you just like to read beautiful, thoughtful prose. So we talked about it, and I will um, let you get to that interview in a moment. But first, thanks so much for listening, um, for being here with us, and for your support of the podcast. What you'll hear over the course of the interview um, is actually three voices. You will hear Simon, you will hear me... And you will hear the ghostly musical moaning of the Vancouver wind coming through my windows as we're talking. It's quite stormy outside. Um, it's the just the beginning of March. It's very windy, and I am on the eleventh floor of a really tall building on the campus of UBC, um, in, that does not have great insulation. And so think of it, listeners, as a musical soundtrack. Think of it as beautiful fragments of impossibility hovering outside my windows and singing to us and moaning into the conversation as we talk. And thus, um, you'll hear a bunch of voices in the conversation to come. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it um, as much as I did. And uh, thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Simon Critchley about his new book, ABC of Impossibility. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Simon, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to this.
2: Thanks very much, Carla. Pleasure to be speaking
1: with you. (laughs) So, Simon, let's kind of start um, from the beginning. And this is the question that's traditional for the channel. Um, What are you typically working on when you're not working on this book? What are you typically writing about when you're not writing books that catalog impossible objects?
2: Mm. Um, there's been no pattern, you know, there's a lot of, I suppose, really quite morbid stuff. The last, the last books were, there was a book on suicide, notes on suicide. There was a, there was an attempt at a novella called Memory Theater, which is a very strange book. And, uh, and a book on Levinas. I did a book on the uh, French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas last year. So a lot, a lot of things last year. So I tend to, you know, have a bit of an attention deficit problem. So I move around. I and mean, there are themes in my work, but it's. Um, I always like to. Take—I always like to take right angles. I always like to, you know, when I, when I've done something, um, then to go off in a, in a, a ninety-degree turn and then think of something else to do. And that's always been my, my way since uh, since I was starting out. Really, So I don't know why that's the case, but that's what I do.
1: <laughs> so the book that we're talking about is not only a really, very fabulously satisfying physical object. It's this small it's white book. book. It's beautiful, yeah. it's really satisfying to, to spend time with. Um, you can really develop a relationship with this book um, in a way that I really love. Um, but it's a book that's in a format that's going to be relatively unusual, perhaps for readers who come to it for the first time. This is a book that consists in what you call, um, early on in the book, fragments of an abandoned work that largely date from 2004 to 2006. Mm-hmm. So, so for readers who haven't yet had the benefit of picking up up the book, and I hope they'll they'll go run and do that after listening to this.
0: Can yeah. you talk
1: a little bit for us about the genesis of the work? How? Um, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Um, the genesis it, of the work. How did this come about?
2: It was. Um, yeah, it, it seems complicated to me now in the sense in which. Um, oh, the first thing, just to preface it, the I mean, the book exists because um, there were these two. This is two guys, uh, Drew Burke and Jason Wagner who run this tiny press called Univocal and, uh, in Minneapolis and, and they're doing a great job. It's just two of them making these books on their own and they've begun to put put together a, a really interesting list of titles and it's one of the kind of interesting developments in publishing most interesting about publishing is the emergence of uh new small presses and they have a a freedom that the academic presses don't have and the trade presses certainly don't have and um this book is also um it's kind of one of a pair physically in the sense in which there's um there's a book called Cosmic Pessimism mm-hmm. written by Eugene Thacker and Eugene and I are are friends and uh we teach we teach together we taught in the uh, in the awesome together a course on mysticism which was very interesting and his book is entirely black with black on black and mine is almost entirely white so <clears throat> the two books together are, are even more attractive it's a, it's a lovely little uh, object on on lesser press and it's uh, just a beautifully exquisite thing and I'm very I'm very happy with how it looks and feels, the tactile quality of books is really important to me. So that's all great. And, um, this guy, Drew, approached me some years ago, I mean, quite some years ago, uh, I think when he was starting out, whether I had anything. And, uh, I, I didn't. And then I thought about this, this, uh, this book that i <clears throat> Started and abandoned, called the ABC of Impossibility, and uh, and it, the idea was to write a kind of book of fragments. And I've been concerned with fragments for a, a long, long time since the early '90s. I've been concerned with writing about fragments and then writing fragments, and then this this book kind of appeared. Uh, as an idea almost fully formed in about 2003, three, four. as I was moving from England to New York. And uh, I remember thinking of the title. I was in Italy and one summer and the title came and I began to think about how it would be arranged. The form of it, the form of things is always very important to me. So the form began to fall into place. And then uh, I began to kind of, you know, Write and collect and assemble fragments and it all seemed to be taking shape. And, um, and then, and then I stopped and I, you know, I, I did something else. I did a whole number of other things and I wrote a more kind of, uh, kind of manifesto type book in ethics and politics called Infinitely Demanding that was a kind of, uh, yeah, it was that, and then I, and then I wrote a book called The Book of Dead Philosophers, which is also it's fragments, but it's uh, it's like a, a chronological and geographical survey of the entire history of philosophy, just through accounts of how philosophers have died since the pre-Socratics to me, basically, although I haven't died yet, and and um, and that that was also using the fragmentary form. So there, there was something about the. Um, the fragment that I was using in the ABC the impossibility that i can then i can track that through uh, a whole number of other books that i've that I've done and works that i've done which have this very kind of staccato fragmentary form it's almost like almost like pop songs it's almost like kind of um and very short pop songs at that i listen i like I listen to a lot of music <laughs> and and so that uh so going back to it when I went back to it when drew said. You know, that sounds interesting. Could you develop that? I then began to go through this, this pile of stuff that I had and uh, eliminate things quite quickly and uh, and then began to you know, get it down to a, a, a series of fragments. I then began to arrange in kind of hard, hard copy. I, I often work with hard copies, and I had them all laid out on the floor, and I was trying to... Rewrite things, and then to find the right sequence. And I hope I eventually got it. So the one odd thing about the, one of the odd things about the book is at the back of the book, there's a contents, an alphabetical contents right. list to all the fragments that arguably exist, and uh, then you see which ones are actually in the book. So this is kind of the this this could be a much bigger book. This is like a small sort of teasing version of a a larger enterprise that might or might not see the light of day we'll see so uh, yeah so so that's kind of and then I just so I went to other things happened it was sitting there in a in a a file and then uh, like a physical file and I went and when I began to write for I began to write for the New York Times in about 2009 (laughs) and that was, that was good fun. Uh, it is good fun. I still, still work for them. And they, and I began to, you know, write op-eds or short pieces, not, not so much political op-eds, but short pieces. And again, that became a kind of fragmentary form, you know, learning to write the 800 word piece or, uh, make a, a, not necessarily intervention politically, but a kind of uh, a meditation of a certain kind. And some of the things in the um, ABC of Impossibility found their way into into the, into the Times of a certain, in about 2009. So there were kind of things I kept going back to and, and drawing on. And then, and then when I had the chance to turn it into this little form of the book, then I I did that last year, I think. Mm-hmm. I
0: don't
2: really remember <laughs> something to me like that. At some point in the past, it
1: was... Uh... <laughs> Got it. <laughs> now, the form of the book is actually really interesting. And this is, as you've mentioned, there is an alphabetical kind of index, right, at the mm. back? I mean, there there are, is an alphabetical list of subjects. Not all of them are keyed to particular pages, which is really interesting and I think really fun yeah. and... and Seems really important, right? Um, but the ordering of the themes, um, the ordering of the what we might call chapters, sections, mm-hmm. um, is uh, something that you call more thematic, right? And you've just talked about the importance of sequencing, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so as we kind of work through, um, I think we'll talk a little bit about that. And it's not completely obvious um, to at least me as a reader why you know happiness comes after world or money one comes after relationships or Patty Smith comes after emptiness <laughs> etc but there are some really interesting core themes that emerge um, from reading from the beginning of it to the end of it that I, I would like to actually um, ask sure. you to talk about a little bit okay so it, it begins after an introduction with fragments um, uh-huh. you, we've already talked about that a little bit right um, you say here or among the fragments of the text that I will throw out into the ether, um, so that listeners can also get fragments of these fragments. Um, tr- yeah. Truth is only communicable indirectly in fragments, and we're mm. going to return to this idea of indirection. Yes.
0: Right. Um, it's very important to me.
1: Yeah. yeah. Actually, um, l- let's talk about that then. Um, indirection. Okay. Can you can you talk about that a little bit then?
2: Uh, another, another thing about this book is that it was. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously all, all books, all writing belongs to moments in one's life. And this is a moment when I was, uh, I've been introduced by a Brazilian friend to uh, the work of um, Fernando Pessoa, yes. uh, who, you know, is arguably one of the, the greatest of the, the modernists, maybe, maybe the greatest of all the modernists, but the least known, that's for sure. And, um, uh, I began to read, uh, Pessoa in particular, a book of his called The Book of Disquiet, which is, um, kind of a discontinuous piece. And then I read, I read a lot of his poetry. And what Pessoa does, um, with particular force is that he, uses what he calls um, heteronyms, and these heteronyms are names of others. And so uh, Pessoa um, proceeds as a, as a writer by working in a number of different personages, and it just so happens that the word Pessoa in Portuguese means person, so his own name means person, and indeed his own name, Pessoa becomes, he becomes a character in his own work. So one of the names that Pessoa uses is Pessoa. So it gets, there's this kind of galaxy, he calls it a galaxy of uh, of names that he produces, each with different styles, different biographies, um, and uh, different languages. You know, Pessoa wrote in uh, English and in French as well as in Portuguese. And it's, so that was, I was kind of under the spell of that, of those techniques of, Pessoa's as in direction, but the interest in direction really goes much further back. And it's, uh, you know, and arguably it's just you know, kind of structural in the sense in which whatever it is that's going on in our heads at any time is, you know, not that interesting. It can be sometimes interesting, but it's not that interesting, which is what makes blogs so often so boring. But what you, what we do when we, when we read, is we enter into uh, another's voice. We live through another's voice. And I think when we read a lot, and then when we write, we also enter into all those voices that we have uh, we have uh, we've adopted that we've learned from over the years. So, so to write in you know in this you know intense and personal way is only possible through occupying. Other people's voices through occupying other personages as it were, and you know that's and that's a, a characteristic characteristic a lot of the the writing that interests me most and that's kind of is it, is it a paradox it's just it's an odd thing that i mean you can um you can say what's in your mind or in your heart um and that's that's perfectly fine but there's something to the way in which whatever is in your mind or in your heart is elevated through the voice of another uh, that one can read and learn from. And then your own voice becomes entangled with the other voice and becomes something else. And then you begin to this odd thing of finding your own voice through reading the voices of others. And that's why we read the history of, why we read books, I guess, because we learn from those other voices something about who we are. And it's uh an odd experience,
1: if you think about it. I was in a seminar way back, way back in grad school, mm. you know, way back in grad school Wait, and gosh, gosh. Um, uh, with Arnold Davidson, the Foucault oh, Seminar, right. okay. um, several years ago. And I had found um, a translation of the Book of Disquiet somewhere in some random bookstore and just thought, this looks awesome. I'm going to read it. And I had it in class and he looked at me and he said, you should read that in Portuguese. <laughs> I <laughs> just walked off. <on.
0: laughs> okay. Right.
1: Um, but it was this is um, to say I was really struck by seeing that in here. Um, and it's a really, really powerful book, and it's one that if listeners haven't um, had a chance to read that, speaking of reading with um, other voices, um
0: Pascal's yeah.
2: book
1: of disquiet, whether or not you read Portuguese, um, in fact. It's really good.
2: Yeah, and I tried to, one of the things I was doing when I was, you know, when I was writing the ABC of Impulse, the first time I was writing it was I was trying to, I was trying to learn Portuguese and um mm-hmm. the translations of Pessoa are kind of adaptations of existing translations that my Brazilian friends corrected and then I did in English and so mm-hmm. I did I stopped learning Portuguese after a certain point but there was it did it did seem quite important at the time. Although I don't I think that I think that translation is translation is really important. I'm all about translation, mm-hmm. so yeah.
1: And speaking of names and voices, right? Another um, voice and name that comes in here is in a fragment called Critchley. Yeah, so we're talking about heteronyms, right? And names. Yeah. Um, in this fragment, you talk about um, speaking about a book in Barbados at the University of the West Indies and yeah. meeting another. Critchley, and you you tell us in this fragment, Critchley was obviously this man's slave name. And then here's another fragment from the fragment that I'll offer to listeners. It's therefore highly likely that one of my ancestors or near ancestors was a plantation owner or some minion in Barbados. The room begins to fill with blood. Now I wanted to mention this as well and take us here, um, not just because of the voices and heteronyms, but because at least in my reading of this, slavery and settlement actually emerge as quite persistent themes throughout yeah. the book. Um, so can mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit? What do you, um, when you reflect on the importance of those themes here, um, what uh, what would you share about that?
2: That's a really good. It's a really good question, and it is important to me in a way that I. I'm not sure I really fully understand, you know, it's just the, um, I mean, there are, there are, there are elements like my family's from Liverpool, which is a port, um, not unlike New York in many ways, as John Lennon used to say, New York reminds him of Liverpool. And so it's a port. It's, um, it was a, a place that made its money through the slave trade in the 18th century and then through, uh, the textile industry and what we'd now call, Capitalism, I guess, and um, it was also a place where the first, um, the oldest black community in the in the um, in England is in Liverpool, and uh, the oldest Chinese community in England is is in Liverpool. So it's a it's a mixed up place and full of all the kind of tensions. And for me, what you know, the um, uh, if I'm thinking about. Place, and i 'm thinking about geography um, which I do a lot then the kind of exemplary figure for that is the port and uh, rather than the capital city so I tend to construct you, know, you can have you can have ports that are capital cities but uh, like London but it's the the idea of the port as this place of passage that a port is a it's an actual physical city that's somehow open to the sea. And I'm always interested in those those places that are ports which are kind of porous, which are open to other areas. And then you end up with a very different conception of, of place. That You know, the, the place that is where I'm from, um, uh, England, is a place that is designed through these porous and, uh, you know, Often rather nasty uh, relationships to other places, like Barbados, for example, which is to do with the you know, the um, what the English learned from the Portuguese, from about slavery and how to develop sugar as a cash crop, and then the all of that. And so, I, I always think that the um, colonialism, if you like, is it, is is, is it's something we cannot ignore, particularly in the United States, which was also a a colony in very similar ways to someone like Barbados, and uh, and when you think about place in terms of movement of colonisation, then you think of these places as kind of open, as linked to other places, and the way they were linked to other places was through was through water was through the sea. And so the sea for me is a very important theme. Both of it. And I was looking at the book before we started to talk and I was just picking up at how many times I talk about the sea and the sea is both, you know, a kind of experience of immense tranquility, of calmness, uh, of terror, of, um, of uh, of the depths of, of of death for sure and also of passage you know the idea of the sea as a place of passage and movement and, and movement of trade and cargo and people and um that's kind of the that's where i tend to begin uh thinking about things like society and, and politics not through kind of static forms like nations uh with names like united states or britain or france with capital cities but in terms of these histories of, of of movement these histories of of trade and where if we begin with that that kind of map uh that way of thinking about space then uh we end up in a very different place it means that you know somewhere like uh, you know what happened to me and So what happened to me in in, in the um in Barbados, it was the first time I'd been to the Caribbean, and that for me was a, was very, very exciting, because the Caribbean was somewhere where, you know, the Queen's sister used to go to, and, you know, people that wrote James Bond novels and things. I was there. Very exciting. And then it was the... Um, the it's 90%, um, 98% black, uh, Barbados, and uh, with a small uh, white elite... And, um, the university was like that too. And there's this moment where I was giving, I wasn't, I wasn't on very good form. I didn't give a very good talk. You know, it wasn't really, wasn't really happening. And, um, this man, Dean Critchley, who's an important figure in the, um, university, asked me a question. And that, so that was kind of a way of registering that and thinking, yes, well, I'm part of that, that kind of nasty, bloody story of, Colonization, and um, it was, uh, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was a, it, it was a, a kind of disturbing moment, an important moment.
1: You also just evoked um, the sea, right? That was um, you actually evoked several things that I was going to ask you to talk about, right. um, which is great. And in fact, the sea comes up also in several of these. Fragments here. Um, you uh, in a fragment that talks about suicide, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned this connection between the sea and death. Um, you talk about mm-hmm. the impulse here to jump off the terrace, um, being like being pulled under by the sea. Yes. You also talk about in um, emptiness. Um, The sort of being obsessed with cities prior to their settlement or at the moment of settlement, but also talk about the sea and have this wonderful suggestion that I hope you'll actually take up one day um, of writing a volume on the role of silt in shaping world history, which as a historian, I have to just personally ask you to do that because that's fabulous.
2: Okay, I'd love to write... I'd love to write something on on silt. I mean, yeah, you know, the history of the history of Western Europe is a history of silt. It's know? just a
1: fabulous idea.
2: The history of particularly places like Britain and uh, the Netherlands, and I mean that whole coast is just about silt and about dredging and about you know whether you can get the silt. You, you can turn the silt into arable land. You can drain it, and you need to get Flemish, you know, specialists over to do that—the engineers or whatever. And I've always been, you know, I, I like the—I would say I like the Netherlands. I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands, in Holland, for uh, over the years. And what's so impressive about that is that, as I say, you know, God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands. They just pulled it out of the sea, um out of the silt and there it is. So there's something um emblematic about that. But also I mean I tend to look at places I don't know why, but I mean I just do uh like the place I'm in, you know, New York, in terms of its um in terms of its prehistory. You see you look at a city and you're trying to imagine what it was like before anybody came here or what the point of first contact was the first encounter, say, between um, colonial settlers and um, and the indigenous population and tried to imagine a way um, you know, I, think, I guess civilization as far as it, this is civilization. And then the other thing is, you know, in places that fall into decay, you know, the, um, I've always been interested in ancient history and um, the extraordinary thing about ancient history is that there are places of huge, huge importance that just disappear. Uh or disappear under under sand or just or disappear under lava or under whatever it might be. And um or the action of the sea. And uh, you know, that and that kind of sense in which the just the fragility of uh of human endeavour I think is and its relationship to the elements is is important. And of course it's obviously you know, becoming very present to us through the, the, uh, the experience of climate change.
0: Right.
2: Because same thing is going to happen, right? <laughs> or it threatens, unless we, unless we avert the onslaught. Which, uh, we'll see.
1: We'll see how we do. Now, another one of the places that comes up frequently here. Um, I mean, we've been talking actually quite a bit about the importance of place and movement. And you bring up America uh, or the U.S. right, sort of in, in different yeah. forms throughout the book. Um, right at the beginning, um, you remind us that Whitman compared the U.S. to a poem of fragments. Right. That's right. And we'll return to poetry um, at some point, hopefully before we're done. But you in also,
0: breaths, yeah. mm-hmm.
1: But you also talk about America um, in the context of this issue of settlement um, that we've just been talking about. Um, in the fragment on America, um, you mentioned that America originates in an act of violent settlement. But also you bring up another figure here, which is really interesting um, and which I uh, perhaps we can talk about a little bit, which is the figure of the virus. You talk about the viral spread of private property and this idea of a virus um, and of sort of infection is also something that comes up in the fragment on languor. Um, when you talk about ah. Venus's virus, right? Kind of. Great, I thought
2: about
1: that. Yeah, so um, it's actually pretty cool, and I was wondering if there's something to that. I mean, is there a like? Are you particularly interested in this figure, this kind of viral figure, or is this a way of getting at the broader importance of kind of movement and time and temporality here?
2: I don't know, it's. I mean, I just thought about that. That's that's really, really interesting. It's um. I think about the, uh, I mean, the, the virus in relationship to the settlement of the um, the settlement of what then became the United States in terms of, you know, you have this very different understanding of space and uh, and settlement and location, which is characteristic of the various. Numerous indigenous populations of of North America, which are then displaced by this new kind of settlement which is takes different forms, but the English form tends to be particularly wedded to the idea of uh, private property and you see that you know end up as this kind of virus of a you know a grid system that defines Manhattan and you know the grid of um, you know agricultural land and fields that which when you're flying over the fly of the states, you know, you see that the way that the land was organized in that way. And um, it always feels to me um, very, um, how would I put it? That there's a kind of surface there, right? That there's a, you know, how deep does that go? There's a, you know, you dig down here or where you are and you're into some totally different uh, way of organizing space. Whereas you know where I'm from, you dig down, you find people that are unfamiliar, but it's a it's a different different lineage, different lineage, and the the virus yeah the virus in relationship to phaedra is something else. I hadn't thought about that connection, but it's very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But the the virus in that case is much more. Ooh. Um, I mean, I've just been, I mean, I read, um, Racine's play, uh, Phaedra, when I was in my first weeks at, um, at, at university, and it just made a, Huge impression on me. For reasons I didn't really understand until much later. I'm not sure I really understand them now. But she's just a figure that is. I mean, she the way she understands it. I mean, she wants to. I mean, she has this you know, very complicated lineage of what her mother got up to with the um, the Minosaur and all the rest. We don't need to go into details. But the virus of eros is in her blood, and she knows that she's infected by it. And uh, it and it mm-hmm. tortures her, and there's no escape from that virus for her. And uh, you know and that's that's Phaedra's story, but I think it's it's uh, it, it suggests a lot of things to me. Well,
1: Venus does that to to people, right? I mean, if you read, Venus. if you think about uh, yeah. um, what happens to Dido, and you think about what ha- what's happening in the Aeneid, I mean, Venus is constantly like Cupid, go infect so and so with. You know, a, a, a passion or love or whatever. There is actually a really interesting, um, like as as you bring up the figure of the virus here, it really does make me think differently about the kind of mode of practice and action that Venus has in a lot of these um, literary references. So. Yeah, I mean
2: Venus. Venus is, you know, Venus is, uh, infects us through the, through the senses, through the eyes, through the ears, through all the, all the, all the senses and it, and what it awakens in us, this is, this is how it would work with Phaedra, but I think this is more general, is what it awakens in us is a, is a kind of virus that has a, an ancestry, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the tricky thing to say the least about um, well the, the tricky thing is you know how we put together love and desire that's that's really really tricky but the way in which uh, what we desire and, and who we love and who we desire and who we love uh, the way in which uh, the figures that, we'll, that we love and desire are ones which will have an ancestry will take us back to maybe what our parents loved and desired or our love and desire for our parents, you know, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. all that messy stuff, which I, I mean, I'm a, you know, a student of, um, of Greek tragedy, you know, to a large, rather large degree. And that in, all those characters in Greek tragedy, are, are characters who are contaminated by uh, a virus that came to them as it were from the womb, and mm-hmm. attack to the past in a way that they can't ever fully escape. So whatever their agency is, whatever their freedom means, it's always in proportion to that that um, their, their determination by that past. And I think that's, that, that tends to be the way I, I see human behavior very, very, very crudely. And the, the, therefore, the most dangerous thing to do is to disavow the past as this, one of my one of my favorite films, one of many people's favorite films is Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson and um he's a genius. But in that film I think on at least four occasions there's this line that comes up, um, as the man says, or as the book says, uh, you might be through with the past but the past isn't through with you. And um that's the way I tend to think about it. If we think we're through with the past, we're, we can make an absolute new start or whatever it might be, then that's when the past will snatch us back, will infect mm-hmm. us in some even worse way. So the only, as it were, antidote to that, or the only way of thinking that through is by um, it's by accepting the extent to which we are constituted and affected by by forces that are not really in our control. Um,
1: And this actually plays out really nicely and this transitions really nicely um, from one to another theme in the case of Phaedra, which is the importance of time. You describe um, Phaedra in relation to time in this way. She's always too late to meet her fate, and this yep. is why she's so utterly fatigued. And, in fact, time and the importance of sort of experiences of time really comes up all over the book. Um, mm. You talk uh, That's and, and, sorry?
2: That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that.
0: It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's great. I mean, from, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, even going back to the sort of beginning-ish in the fragment of, um, on happiness – you talk about um, the experience of um, in the words of the book momentary self sufficiency that's bound up with the experience of time and, yeah. and really it comes up all over i mean do, did you want to reflect on that a little bit sort of
2: but, yeah life? well first thing is, I mean the, what's nice about this conversation is that I mean i you know i I've written a lot of stuff and I tend to do I've done a lot of interviews and it tends to, and, you, and it all becomes very Formulaic after a while. Like, I've done, like, I don't know how many things about David Bowie in the last uh, <laughs> yeah. six, six weeks. And I'm, I'm really happy to do that because I love David Bowie and he's very important to me and he's very important. So, but this book. Uh, with this little tiny press in Minneapolis, it, you know it's. it's um, I haven't really talked about it much. I did a an attempt, to a kind of a reading with Eugene Sacker in Williamsburg in in November, and uh, so it's it's kind of just popped out there, and uh, uh, I've not really thought about it very much. It's very interesting what you're saying, uh, and I'm pleased I'm pleased that you're you're seeing these themes which I'm. They're there. I just. I'm not really as conscious of them as I should be. But time, I mean, kind of the way it, I guess the kind of way it works with me is that um, I begin from an idea that we don't coincide with ourselves. So the idea of self coincidence, I am I, or I think therefore I am, or whatever it might be, the idea of self coincidence, which we which we think of as kind of obvious is, uh, just ain't the case that we, um, we are the sort of creatures who, um, as I say, somewhere in the book are eccentric with regard to ourselves, That we're kind of out of sync with ourselves and we constantly fail to coincide with ourselves. And that's, and that's kind of rich and interesting. I think it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating thing to, to explore. So that's the sense in which, you know, we're, we're always kind of, we're out of time, you know, and time is always out of joint, you know, and again, I think about that obviously in relationship to drama, and obviously Shakespeare, Hamlet. I mean, if Hamlet is the, you know, the quintessential, um, you know, existential, ruminating person, then, you know, whatever, We can say about Hamlet; he doesn't coincide with himself. Right? He 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 kind of is constituted by a set of relationships, most obviously with the ghost of his dead father, who has the same name as him, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and uh, who pops up and tells him to avenge, uh, avenge his murder. And so, and I think that the I think identity in that sense, self identity, is that is uh the feature which most defines it is that lack of self coincidence which I don't see as a deficit I see it as a kind of productive thing it makes us the kind of interesting creatures that we are now that said i mean there's there's a fragment um called happiness which is not not a big theme in my work <laughs> but the it's a uh, which is a reflection on uh, Rousseau and um, if ever there were anybody that didn't coincide with himself, it was Rousseau. <laughs> Rousseau even wrote, you know, books about the fact that he didn't coincide with himself. You know, Rousseau critique of Jean-Jacques or Jean-Jacques, you know, Crit- uh, critique of Rousseau, whichever way around it, is the second autobiography. He writes three. In the third autobiography, uh, confessions being the first, um, Reveries of a Solitary Walker. There's this moment when Rousseau reflects on his experience in a boat on the um, the Lake of Vienne in, in what is now in, in Switzerland, and um, of him having gone off botanizing for uh, a while. He, he took great delight in botany. And then, um, going back to the, the shore and just letting the boat drift and then lying down in the boat. At that point, there was a, he said a, a, he had a feeling of existence, a feeling of existence, which was a feeling of, um, I guess a kind of sentient awareness of being sufficient for a moment and, um, mm-hmm. and kind of godlike at that point. Right and it doesn't last very long, but the fact that someone as hyper self-conscious as Rousseau would feel it, I find, I find really interesting. So that was one of those moments. I mean, The book in many ways, in retrospect, it's, you know, and this is kind of how I, just how I function. I don't know why I function this way, but how I function, I'll just find quotes, and I will, you know, squirrel them away somewhere. And that quote from Rousseau, from uh, whatever chapter it is of, of the reveries was just—I wanted to get that into some form or other at some point—and um, yeah. And it's—it's a, it's a strange moment. So that's that's a, that's a, if you like the the illusion, the illusion, or the moment—the moment when even a creature like Rousseau could coincide with himself and feel a kind of sufficiency. But most of the time, where we experience ourselves as being kind of out of joint.
1: And to experience that self-sufficiency is described here as to be without time, right? Which is just, again, like just really, really interesting.
0: Yeah,
2: it's like that line from Wittgenstein where he says the eternal life is given to those who live in the present. Mm -hmm. So if the present, if eternity exists, it exists as some kind of experience of the present, some kind of extension of that. Which is one way of, you know, was one way of thinking about God as existing in a kind of eternal presence, Um, which sounds really nice. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I'm not sure. But we, for the most part, don't experience that. We, We kind of we experience these three dimensions of time simultaneously as dimensions which pull us one way or the other continually. And for most of the time, we can manage that. We can manage that in relation to the past, the present, and the future, but often that becomes too much and we kind of fall apart. And that's um, and the past can rear up behind us and Vices and when the future doesn't appear, but when there doesn't appear to be a future, you know mm-hmm. and, um, that can that can sometimes happen. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this in relationship to. Um, I was reading a my my mother died before Christmas, which is a whole
0: other
2: a whole other story. But I've been re- I was reading a lot of um, things about grief, most of which were by were by women. It was interesting. I wasn't kind of choosing things by women, but. In uh my little survey it was uh anyway and um and I was reading um a text by an English poet called Denise Riley mm-hmm. and uh she talks about the uh she's meditating on the death of her son um and it's it's an incredibly moving piece of writing because it's not sentimental at all I mean she's someone that was sort of trained philosophically she's really trying to work out what was going on with her. But one thing she says is that uh, to write, to be able to write, uh, one must take an interest in the future. Even if that future is one's posthumous future, one must take an interest in the future. And uh, the experience of, say, bereavement, um, I mean, really, you know, sort of grave bereavement, as it were, uh, is an experience where that future disappears. A future simply ceases to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Really strange.
2: And so the um, and that's a whole other experience of time and she talks about this in relationship to her experience of grief but grief is the wrong word. She says that over and over again but her experience of trying to you know, deal with the, the death of her son and what it induces in her is a kind of experience of time coming to a stop. Time just won't
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, time loses its flow, loses its character of movement, and uh, it also makes writing um, impossible because, you know, there's no future to write for. So, yeah, so I think the, um, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's a fascinating set of topics, actually.
1: Yeah, and it's actually... Um this uh, just to kind of mention for listeners again um, who hopefully will pick up the book if they haven't already these themes are, are also really interestingly interwoven in the section on death in the book um, You talk, and, and you can hear the background singing what I like to think of as the music of the wind whistling through the windows of my office probably just there's oh, really? a chorus uh, if, if, you can, if you can hear that um, so we'll have music yeah. in the background and music is one of the themes also um, also uh, that we could talk about if we had more time. And in this section of death, um, uh, on death, uh, the the book says, it's in mourning and grief that we most become ourselves. And if it's true that one, um, that the experience of time or being out of time or stopping time is also, right, the experience of somehow being most oneself, um, you can kind of see how these come together. And there's a coda as well that you leave us with that also, in a way, embodies the experience of being kind of out of time in really a, a sort of delicious way I think at the end that also brings together a lot of the kinds of things that, uh, that we've been talking about
2: it's, uh, it, was, it was yeah that was actually based on an experience which was I was in the, uh, the Brazilian in the countryside in the countryside uh, behind Rio de Janeiro <laughs> in Brazil uh, in what to me felt like the jungle but it was just the countryside. I'd never really experienced the jungle before. And there was that uh it was just an extraordinary uh experience of a day a day ending and a whole series of noises the noises of insects in particular and birds mm-hmm. subsiding and then being replaced by the sound of frogs mm-hmm. and just this uh, the whole area was just reverberating with this noise of, of frogs. And it was it was an extraordinary experience. So I lay out there for quite a long time and then came back in. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I looked like, you know, pizza margarita. I was just, I'd been bitten to death. I'd never been bitten as badly in my in my life. It was really really terrible but yeah but it was worth it for the experience (laughs) and that's also a kind of um that the code of the book is also a kind of a nod to fernando Pessoa Mm -hmm. as well uh, evocation of that um uh, of that that personage um
0: yeah
1: (laughs) So maybe as we're sort of um, coming toward what will be a conclusion of our conversation, there's one theme that we haven't yet talked about. Um, but um, but I'd like to mention because it's also a really persistent theme throughout the book. And um, in uh, actually the fragment on impossibility, you mention this as one of the three themes that are perhaps three um, impossible objects that um, you talk about in, in addition to poetry, which we could talk about for another hour at least. Um, there's I mean, this beautiful material on surfaces and poetry in here that I just love, in addition to music, which we could I'm also talk that,
2: I'm pleased with the poetry. I mean, I'm happy with that. that. That's one of the few bits I'm really happy with that. Well, in let's, relationship then to, let's go so. there.
1: Let's maybe like close with that. I wanted to oh. um, bring us eventually to the comic, right, to humor and satire. Yeah. But to get there, let's go to poetry first, because the surface reality Fragment was actually one of my favorites um, in the book, and I really loved that. And if you were particularly pleased with the way poetry worked out, I would actually like to hear a little bit about that. Um, for why were you particularly pleased about that? What were you hoping the poetry material was going to do in the book?
2: And um, for you, well, I mean, successful. I mean, I'm a you know, um, I'm meant to be a philosopher, and some people would dispute that. <laughs> at, least I, at least I can claim to teach philosophy, and although some people would probably even dispute. But, but you're meant to be deep as a philosopher, We're meant to be concerned with what's below the surfaces of the appearances and to the heart of the matter and truth. And we construct axioms which you know, which pick out the the, uh, the structure of reality and so on and so forth. And and um, or we we see the meaning of something which is not apparent to the senses; it's hidden, Descartes or whatever. And I just think that's um, whether that's true or not, that's not what I do. What interests me in relation to poetry is um, the way in which poetry can get us to attend to the surfaces of things, and the surfaces of things in their uh, in their rich kind of context of meaning, like their, you know, their rich web of meaning, which is kind of what's under our eyes, uh, or in front of our eyes the whole time, but we usually don't see because we're too preoccupied with Habit routine with what we expect to see, or and so what the poet can do for me, uh, and I've got like a little sort of mini can of poets that I cling to. The most important of which, I guess, is Wallace Stevens, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly the late Wallace Stevens. And what fascinates me about the late work of Wallace Stevens is that he's just he's trying to. Attend to what he sees um, and to describe what 's happening outside a window, um, looking through a window at a bird on a on a branch as simple as that, or to like elizabeth Bishop when she 's trying to describe putting a a hand in salt water you know and it, it's you know it, so poetry for me is is um, is about the the return to the surfaces of things that we we inhabit that we live in but we don't see because it's kind of too blindingly obvious to us it's too it's too um it's too familiar and i guess a line of a line of, uh, a, a line of thought that i've been attracted to which you can link to figures like um i guess the figures like wittgenstein is the um You know, we don't see the everyday. The everyday is really what matters and we don't see it because we're always looking through it to find God or the brain or our DNA or whatever. Uh, And what we should be attending to is what shows up, what appears. And uh, the easiest way for us to see that is through the indirection of someone else's voice. So a poet can point those things out to us or a, a movie maker can point those things out to us in a particularly powerful way. And that's also kind of the theme of impossibility in a way that, uh, you know, there's a kind of playful side to this in in the sense in which the theory of impossible objects is the idea that whatever I say about the things which interest me, let's say poetry, music, and humor is not required by those, by those things. It's kind of redundant. Um, I like the, the I like the I like the idea of my own redundancy as, as a figure in relationship to those things which I love. So I mean, I've always seen my my role uh, for reasons again that I don't really understand. Is is I can try to point people towards something else. I can hopefully point people towards, say, the verse of Wallace Stevens and they can perhaps find something in that that would be of uh, of interest. And At that point, my my role kind of evaporates. So I like the idea of the philosopher as a kind of What's that, what's that website, the, uh, is it Snapchat or, it's Snapchat which evaporates, right?
1: Oh, uh, I think so.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think it's like a philosophical Snapchat. You just kind of, <laughs> you make, you make a certain remark and then it would just kind of, like a bubble would just look, like, poof, but you'd be pointed towards that which you want to point someone towards. And, uh, that's what's important. And the, yeah, you know, the thing is that we, you know, we, um, we we live within you know an average everyday world, whatever that whatever constitutes that. Whether that's the wind coming through your window or the sound of my fridge here, and uh, it takes us a long time to uh, we find that difficult to attend to. Um, and it's you know one of the one of the great uh, virtues of poetry is that it enables us to attend to that by by being about something else and then we can return to what is in front of us with a slightly different eye. And that's uh, Mm -hmm. what I'd like to do.
1: I love that. And, and in fact, why don't, for the last thing I'll ask you, rather than asking you about humor, um, even though I said I was going to do that, listeners, there is lots of stuff about humor,
0: satire, Gina, here.
1: Um, I would like to just ask
0: you... Big laugh. laughs.
1: Big laughs. It's hilarious. 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 But, um, <laughs> but before, rather than that, what I'd like to do is just to ask you one more thing about poetry, um, and then we'll kind of wrap up. And specifically, poems aren't pies, we aren't herring. Yeah. It's just, it's there on the page. Right, it's like Vardaman. Um, my mother is is a fish. I mean, it's just there, and then it's so it's really powerful. Um, did you want to speak to that? Poems aren't pies. We aren't herring. Or do you want to just leave it there?
0: We could
2: leave it there. It's one of those things I found. I was, uh, and I, I I don't know where I found that. I mean, it was. Um, I, w- I was told it. I, I think I went to. Uh, you know, I, it might have been an artist or some kind of presentation at a seminar, a long, long time ago. There's one of those quotes that I was just carrying around in my my kind of file of quotes that I carry around, and I finally found a place for it. Um, Poems aren't pies, we aren't herring. I mean, and at one level, yes, it seems obvious. Poems aren't pies, we aren't herring, but... Maybe not. I mean, how do we, you know, I'm very fond of herring and uh, I eat an awful lot of herring. So if I, you know, just ate herring for the next couple of years, I'd, I'd be, you know, more than part herring. And um, <laughs> which can, And similarly, we could imagine, why aren't poems pies? I mean... We could imagine the kind of the poetry of the pie maker. So it's it's one of those kind of, it's an absurdist moment. There's a couple of absurdist moments in the book. Mm
0: -hmm. The other one
2: which comes to mind is the, you know, um, you know, when Heidegger says uh, tourism should be banned. Oh,
0: yeah. And uh, (laughs) not about Germany.
2: uh, When I visit Germany. And that, yeah, so one of those hilarious moments in this hilarious book. And, um, yeah, so I find that humor is important for all sorts of reasons because there's, um, I mean, for me, to make it like a, you know, a sort of 30-second version of it, humor, I mean, good humor, and there's an awful lot of bad humor, We we know that, but really good humor does what philosophy is meant to do. I think that does it in a way that, in a sense, we already understand. To, I mean, to, to be able to describe the number of, uh, as it were, source experiments, conceptual games that go on in a, a series of well-told jokes, um, and to of that as philosophical terms would be very, very complicated. We possess that, uh, insofar as we are capable of, you know, hearing jokes, telling jokes, uh, exchanging humour, humour being the kind of uh, the bond of sociability that we have. We're capable of this enormous intelligence and sophistication uh, in a really everyday life practice. That's what interests me. So, um, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, when people when people say uh, philosophy is difficult, philosophy that must be difficult, and I think that's, that's not true. Everything that you need to do in philosophy is really it can be can be encapsulated in really what it means to understand and tell a joke Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) fabulous i think that's a good place to, to wrap it up, actually. Excellent. I think that's a really nice note to end on. Uh, so, Simon, there's a ton of stuff, right, as we've talked about already, that we haven't talked about, um, that we could talk about for hours more. Um, but given that we're at our conclusion, is there anything else in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
2: Um, no, nothing, really. And uh, I'm very happy if they got this far in the listening to... I'll speak. I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be <laughs> flattered and delighted.
1: <laughs> and assuming, <laughs> assuming that they do, um, what are you working on now? Now that the book is out, what's currently inspiring you?
2: Well, and I've taken a, I minute, mean, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going through a, probably another right turn. So I, I did a whole number of things came out last year. One of which was the ABC of Impossibility, and I was, and I felt a kind of nausea with. How much stuff was coming out, and so I then vowed to stop writing for the foreseeable future, but of course you know I'm yeah, too, good luck with that right too vain and narcissistic to you know of course i want I'll, I'll carry on, but I'm thinking now about writing something on um on Julian of Norwich, medieval uh Christian mystic, for reasons that uh are not completely apparent to me but uh i mean the one of the one of the most obvious kind of fact about julia of norwich was it was the first uh, her book showings first publishing the first written in 1382 is the first book in english by an english woman hmm. and uh it just strikes me one thing is it just strikes me that that that's important uh in and of itself and what she does in this uh in this book is to construct a kind of informal theology of of love, which uh, I find really fascinating. And so I've been, um, so I'm thinking about writing something on her and connecting it with the the great Canadian poet, Anne Carson.
1: Oh, oh, I love her.
2: So I'm thinking of connecting it to uh, Anne Carson's text, there's a book that she did a few about, about 10 years ago now called Decreation. I've read
0: oh yeah. more
2: stuff, but Decreation, there's this essay in there on uh, on Sappho, uh, Marguerite Porat and Simone Weil mm. and uh, I found something in there last year, I found a kind of uh, you know, sometimes when you write, sometimes when you're reading and making notes, you, you think you found a lever or found some kind of key. I think I found something there that at least for a few pages could be interesting and that could be, when you a the problem of writing and Anne Carson, so when Anne Carson says, um, there's too much self in my writing.
0: She says that there's too mm-hmm. much self
2: in my writing. And I want to look at that question of the self in relationship to, to writing and what it is that we're doing when we write. Because what we're doing when writing at one level is just we're saying self, self, self. But most people that write are trying to do something else. So what is it they're trying to do? Mm -hmm. And uh, these mystics like Julian of Norwich were in the business of doing that too. Uh, And they called that other thing that wasn't their self God. Um, I'm not so sure about that, but uh, I I accept the sincerity of the enterprise. So I'm going to try. with that for a while
1: Great. well I was about to say why are you not writing the world history of silts but yeah. if, if it involves Ann Carson um, then, that's, then that's okay that's
2: forgivable it's okay
1: well Simon, <laughs> Simon thank you so much it's really been a pleasure and thanks, thanks so that. much for making the time
2: thank you very much for
1: having me you've been listening to the new books network seminar thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time